from Relay FM. This is Connected, episode 124. Today's show is brought to you by Pingdom, Ministry of Supply, and Blue Apron. My name is Mike Hurley, and I am joined by Federico Fatici. Ciao, Federico. Ciao, Mike. And Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hi, Stephen Hackett. Howdy. So I mentioned to Jason Snell on Upgrade yesterday that Upgrade is catching up with this show. So Upgrade just posted episode 123. We just posted one episode one. Well, we're about to today post episode 124. How is so, this possible? Because uh, <laughs> we take Christmas off. Yeah. Upgrade doesn't take time off like like we do. Um, so we have a, to, to push ahead. Not a ahead. healthy schedule. That's, that's not healthy, Mike. You should well, take some time off. The upgradees they need to they need to to happen. So basically, my recommendation now is uh, we move to daily, daily mm-hmm. a daily connected show. Okay, yeah. for like two yeah. weeks we just go daily, yes. and it's it's the same length as the, as a regular weekly episode. We record it once and just release it in like seven chunks. Okay, what do you want to talk about on a daily show? <sighs> I think we start with follow up <laughs> as we always do. Okay, <laughs> so our. Uh, Rumored 10-inch iPad Pro uh, continues mm. to to make news. Uh, now it is expected that this uh, is going to be like a new high-end iPad Pro. I don't really know what that means because the 12.9 <laughs> is also going to get updated. No, you just go higher um, end than the Pro. It's the iPad yeah. Pro Plus. I mean, just keep making it more expensive, Tim. It'll totally work. Mm-hmm. The 9.7-inch model is now going according to the rumor, be the low-priced option. So I guess the iPad, the 9.7-inch iPad Pro we have now sticks around, mm-hmm. and then the new 10 to 10.5 to 10.9, whatever size it is, it's all very strange, and it's all very confusing, and I have a lot of questions. One, this kind of reads like the iPad Mini, like, mm-hmm. is either going to mm-hmm. stay the iPad Mini and not get updated to, like, Pro status, or just go away. I don't think they can do that, but uh, the iPad Mini is not in here anywhere. And I'm not sure, like, so, so part of this uh, this analysis says that this is going to be the thing that finally, like, stops the, the free fall the iPad has been in, which has been slowing down, to be fair. But I, I don't know if I believe that. This seems like more of the same playbook of, like, making nicer, more expensive iPads to, like, get people to upgrade, and when they do, you make more money from it. I think this feels like just another step down that road and not something to, like, stem, you know, to change the tide. I don't know. What What mm. do you guys think? I have feelings about this rumor, <laughs> and none of them are actually answers. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, thinking about, I'm thinking about this new form factor, um, and I have this idea that Apple is going gonna, is gonna to switch to this bezel-free design, both on the iPad and on the iPhone, but that it's not going to be a complete switch across the line. Like, there's going to be one iPad model that adopts this new design, and there's going to be one iPhone model that switches to this new design. And the other iPhones and iPads are going to stick around. So we're still going to get the 9.7 with the current bezel design. We're going to get the 12.9 updated, and there's going to be the new version that sits in the middle. Mm Mm-hmm. And I have this idea that the bezel-free model is actually going to get thicker because it doesn't have bezels, it doesn't have the home button. And so to make sure that you're holding a single slab of glass, it's going to be thicker. I don't know why, but I have this idea. I, I can see that. I mean, they have a lot of stuff behind that top and bottom bezel, and it's got yeah. to go somewhere. Right? Exactly. 
I'd be all for that. I think we talked about this. If it gets rid of the stupid camera bump, which I I don't mind on my iPhone. Like it, it really generally doesn't bother me and I carry my iPhone without a case. It like I hate it on my 9.7 inch iPad Pro. Like anytime I like maybe it's because I'm rougher with the iPad, like I slide it across the table or like put it on my nightstand, like the camera always like catches on something. Like at some point I'm just gonna rip the thing out of the body. Uh so I would love for that to be flush again. I'm keeping my fingers crossed. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I kind of agree with you. I think this is going to be a like a staggered design change. You, you think about when they went to the the design we have now with the thinner side bezels. That first appeared on the iPad Mini because yeah. the iPad 4 was still around. And when the iPad Air came out the next year, it sort of became a big iPad Mini, right? The same construction, yes. the same bezels. And so there's precedent for this. And I think you're right that if they do this, like it's going to be a big change. I don't see them doing this to the 12.9. Like that thing is, is I think probably heavier than they want it to be. And so maybe they keep the current construction there, but work to get it thinner and lighter mm-hmm. and use this nine po- or use this uh 10 point X inch model as like the, the new form factor. And then, you know, the next couple of years it rolls out everywhere. I think it's especially interesting to think about a, bezel-free design on the iPad in terms of how it may affect iOS. Because think about all of the activation points, all the gestures that you use from the edge of the display on the iPad, especially multitasking. Uh, We have gestures from the edge of the display on the iPhone too, but on the iPad, especially if combined with some changes in 10.3, I assume a bezel-free design would be interesting when you want to activate multitasking, for example, or maybe you want to do drag and drop, I wonder how it may af- this design may be tied to the software and vice versa. So it'd be interesting if Apple does a beta 10.3, if we can infer some of the design changes coming to the hardware to facilitate the changes in the software. So I'm looking forward to the beta also, not just to see what's actually changing, but also to see if we can guess what the next hardware is going to be like. I don't think bezel-free, I mean, I think we use the term bezel-free, but I don't think there will be no bezels. Mm. Um, I think that it will be, like, super thin, and but really where we're going to see gains is in the chin and the forehead of the phone, right? That, like, it stretches out across, or on the, and on the iPad, like, it stretches out and makes everything, all the bezels a little thinner. Um, just because of the things that you mentioned, right? Like activating side gestures and stuff. The only other thing that I could assume is if they do go bezel-free, that they curve the screen on the edges a little bit. Um, yeah, right. And then, and then that is what allows you to activate all of the side swiping, which on the iPad is incredibly important, yep. right? Because you're, you're actually manipulating parts of the operating system purely based on these. So, you know, I, I think we talk about bezel free but i would be really surprised if the first time that apple like significantly reduced the the bezels on these devices in a long time and i guess on the iphone it may be in ever um i think that there will still be something there but it will be super slight and really will be getting a lot more benefit um from losing the top and bottom than the sides the big question is what happens to the home button on the ipad because the current rumor says there's not gonna be one so it it's gonna be inter- one I agree. I think it's going to be in the screen, and I think it, the iPad will be a preview of the change coming to the iPhone as well. But it's interesting because basically everything is going to be based on gestures, and you know, there's going to be Touch ID integrated on one side of the display, basically. Well, that's m- my feeling. Different to 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 the iPhone, like I I my feeling, it just doesn't need 
the iPad doesn't need a home button at all because gestures to activate those functions are way easier to achieve with the iPad. And for me, I don't know about you guys, but uh, I always use those gestures, you know, like the pinch gesture and the swipe up gesture with the four or five fingers. Like that's how I get to the home screen and get to multitasking on my iPads all the time. Um, and, and I think that they with the iPad, they can get away with that, right? Like if they haven't worked out a way to I do what I assume is an incredibly difficult task of embedding a home button in the screen, they could maybe get away with it. Because as F. Hanshaw in the chat room is suggesting about 3D touch, now I would expect that a home button embedded in a screen is going to need 3D touch, right? It's going to need the haptic motors. And I'm... I'm unconvinced that that is coming to the iPad line. Mm-hmm. So I wouldn't be surprised. They're like, there's no home button, but look how great these gestures are. That That's where I think it might go with the iPad at least. But I don't think it'll be that way for the iPhone. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't use gestures much. Um, I guess the big question for me is what's going to happen to all of the accessibility features based on the home button? What's going to happen to Siri if you don't have a button on the screen, you know? But I yeah, guess but these a, are a, also... A, no physical hardware button makes the accessibility stuff difficult, whether it's in the screen or not, right? Because right. if there is a home button in the screen, right, if we take it to that to that perceived idea of where that's going to go, you won't mm-hmm. feel it. Right. So it's yeah. it's always going to be a problem uh, for accessibility reasons. So I, I'm interested to see that. Like, I'm still unconvinced about this home button in the screen idea. Uh, I, I I remain unconvinced about that as a thing, mm-hmm. to be honest. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and and I know that it's like it is an idea and it is a good idea, but it just seems like an, a, a really tricky engineering problem that I'm unconvinced Apple has solved. Like you know, and I, and I look at the MacBook Pros as an example of that. You know, like the little Touch ID section on the on the the Touch Bar. Mm-hmm. It, really, that should be screen, but it's not. Um, and, and so I, I just remain unconvinced that that is a problem to solve. But I think that they have time. And uh, I like the idea of doing it in one model because uh, it lends... I'm so happy, Federico, to hear that you are already leaning towards my idea of the iPhone Pro prediction uh, for later in the year. I, I can't believe I, I brought you around already. You, I, I, di- I didn't say that. <laughs> you said you thought that they might do one iPhone. Didn't say iPhone Pro. It's but if they do, right? Like if they have a, if they have an iPhone Seven S, which is the design that we have right now, and then they have another one that's more expensive and has a bezel less design, it would probably be called the iPhone Pro, right? Like it makes sense. I, I am, I think I can see that, right? Like that these are thicker phones that are incredibly expensive, like and the iPad as well. Like this ten. 0.5 or whatever it's going to be, that thing's going to be over $1,000. Like, if they do what we're thinking that they're going to do, they put it there, and the idea of it, like, taking the iPad out of the, the tailspin is it just increases profits, right? Because this iPad appeals to everyone that bought the Pro last year, right? It's like it's meant for them. So, like, we buy another one after a year, and it pushes the, the profits up. And if I get a nice design out of it and a, and a cool new iPad like I'm happy to give them my money I think that's the point yeah, you're always <laughs> happy to give them your money I, well I mean with the iPad definitely shopping problems return 
Uh, so we have a bunch of topics this week, but first, Mike, do you want to tell us about our first sponsor? I most certainly do. I would like to take a moment to thank our friends over at Pingdom for helping support this week's episode. You can start monitoring your website and servers at pingdom.com slash connected. And when you go there, you'll get a 14-day free trial. And also, you can enter the offer code connected at checkout to get 20% off your first invoice. Now, I know something. What Pingdom is for is to, to help people uh, to understand whether their website is up and to understand how functional their website is at a certain time. But I know there are many people that right now and will later in the year use Pingdom for new and interesting things. Uh, like, for example, as we are recording this right now, there is some expectation of some exciting new Apple betas today. And I know many of my friends that use Pingdom to monitor Apple websites to see when things change. Uh, which I think is kind of incredible. Like I know that uh, underscore, I think he was using Pingdom to to check for when Super Mario Run was released and stuff like that. And I know that like people use it for like WWDC stuff. So you can definitely use Pingdom on your own website, but you can also use it on others as well to find out when some new and exciting things may change. Pingdom is focused on making the web faster and more reliable for everybody who uses the web, who has their own sites. They use 70, they employ 70 global test servers that emulate visits to websites, checking availability as often as every minute. They can monitor the availability and performance of a server, database, or website. So simply. You can also monitor independent things on your website, independent dependencies, such as contact forms, e-commerce checkouts, login, search functionality, and loads more. Because let's face it, websites these days, they're more than just the website that you host in that one place. They're full of things hosted in external servers and all over the place. Things break on the internet all the time, and it might not just be your thing that's broken. Every month, Pingdom detects around 13 million outages. That's more than 400,000 every single day. So whether you have a small website or a huge one, it's super important to monitor the availability. You just give Pingdom the URL that you want to monitor, and they will take care of the rest. Check it out today, and you'll be first to know when your site is down. Go to pingdom.com slash connected for a 14-day free trial, and use the code connected, C-O-N-N-E-C-T-E-D at checkout to get 20% off your first invoice. Our thanks to Pingdom for their support of this show and Relay FM. So up first, we're going to talk about CES, everyone's Woo! favorite... Las Vegas uh, event destination, mm -hmm. uh, dumpster fire. So, you know, CES, generally the Apple community kind of rolls its eyes at. I think there's some good reasons there. But this year, a really interesting story caught our attention. And that is basically Alexa being built in to all uh, all sorts of things. Mine just turned on and staring at me. Um, the So it's important to kind of break this down. So... The service was built into the the Echo, Apple's hard or uh, Amazon's hardware, but there is also a way that third party hardware manufacturers can tap into that ecosystem. So there are a couple of different ways they can do it. They can put the voice services package into their hardware, or they can basically pass it off to to Amazon uh, directly. So a couple of different ways other companies can build on top of of the service and. So we see a lot of this at CES, everything from like smartwatches, someone put it in a refrigerator for some reason, mm -hmm. uh, Ford, the, the auto company is rolling it into their vehicles. So uh, beginning, I think this year, you'll be able to, to talk to your Echo and say, hey, start my car or hey, unlock the doors. 
but eventually it will roll out where it's in vehicle, so you can actually be in your car and talk to it like you can talk to Siri in your car. So it, you know, there's this common burn that we get into this that you know Alexa doesn't really work as an assistant because it is stuck in your kitchen, to quote Phil Schiller, and that's like that burn is already out of date, like it is changing, and it's I just. I find it really, uh, really fascinating that this thing is just spreading like wildfire. Well, there's um, there's a bunch of points that we need to make. Otherwise, we're just going to make some people upset. Um, the obvious first counter argument would be that Apple is taking a different approach with HomeKit and Siri, uh, which is basically we got to talk about these two things combined because Alexa is both an assistant and also a suite of home connected services and devices. So the big difference is that Siri works internationally and HomeKit uh, is not limited to the United States, um, whereas the Alexa web, uh, web services and the Echo are like available in three countries, I think, the US, the UK, and Germany, if I'm not mistaken. At this point in the show, I would like to just ask a question. Yes, okay. Do we say that word or not? I muted my... my <laughs> well, sure, speaker. I've also muted mine. But uh, we could be setting off devices all around the globe. Uh, but- Jason Snell said that that's fine yeah. for media to do. I think so. No, I don't think he did. I I would say Echo. All right, that we call it the Echo. No, no, just we just tell people to to mute their speakers right now because we're gonna say the word as it stands currently. I have taken notes to bleep every time it is mentioned. <laughs> I think we just say it and you just bleep them all. I think it'd be hilarious. No, I don't want all that work. I think we should just call it the echo. I think that that is fair. I think we need to leave dangerously every once in a while. No, I don't like to do that. Just say Alexa. See, it's fine. It's well, fine. See, yeah, Nothing but every time, every time you say it, I'm bleeping you, so... No, no, don't say Alexa. Don't bleep me, Mike. Alexa. Come on. Come on. I just want to say Alexa. Okay. Anyway. I will get you for this. No. No, you won't. Um... So there's a difference between uh, Amazon's approach and Apple's approach. Uh, they're different. You could argue that Apple's uh, is more considered, maybe. They have, in theory, they have strict security requirements. The reason why you have fewer HomeKit devices than Alexa-connected uh, devices is that based on what we know, based on the rumors we heard, based on you know some reports from publications in the past, uh, Apple is very slow to approve new HomeKit devices. Uh, you got to have a special chip inside. It's not like you can make a security camera with some web service and there you go. You just sign up for the Amazon web services and you can roll out your Alexa integration. It doesn't work that way with HomeKit. Um, but also, the counter-counter argument is Amazon started slow. Now he's taking the Netflix approach, which is you have a basic product that works well, is fast, and now is spreading starting with the US, the UK, Germany. Now it's coming out on a bunch of different devices and they have what Apple doesn't have with Siri and HomeKit, which is momentum. And Amazon is able now to scale the product from the US to Europe to hundreds of devices that, you know, they're not available in HomeKit. You don't have HomeKit fridges. You don't have, you know, HomeKit cars, of course. Um... It's two very different strategies. And I tend to sit somewhere in the middle. I love my Echo. I also realize that Siri and HomeKit are available to more people around the world. 
But also, on the other hand, I have a better experience with Alexa and the Echo than I have with Siri. I know that it's not as, as flexible, but every time I ask a question to my Echo, it responds. Whereas I don't have the same experience with, you know, with Siri and other HomeKit devices. And furthermore, the, the Echo is able to talk to more services than Siri is. I mean, already, you know, I'm able to do way more by by having queries of my Echo and asking it to do things for me than Siri can. Siri, Siri cannot arm my canary via IFTTT, you know? I mean, that's definitely like the fundamental difference between the two companies' approaches. And, you know, The Verge had this article pitching Alexa versus the HomeKit, which I think is pretty unfair. Not only, like you said, Alexa does a lot more than that, but the they're just different things. And one reason I think that Amazon has seen success is that they do open up what they call skills to anybody. So like, you know, Federico could write a skill to, you know, you could say, um, Oh, I did. Yeah. Vatici teaching me Italian. Like he could, anybody can do almost anything with it. Now contrast that with Apple, with HomeKit and with Siri. Siri kit is only open to select types of applications and you have to, to fit within Apple's template of how you use it. And HomeKit is only available to hardware manufacturers that go through from what seems to be from the outside an extremely difficult process to get approved. Now, there's pros and cons to both, right? Amazon is, is, has wide-reaching uh, skills and Apple's is more narrow. Now, you may say that Apple's may be higher quality or more secure because they're controlling everything. It's not really the debate for today. They're just different. And I think that comparing Amazon and Apple in these arenas like it's just it's just tricky. They're not it's not apples to oranges. It's not really the same thing. Um, but you know the time is coming where Apple is going to have to address this. I think this is where we get into the Phil Schiller interview, which was really about the iPhone anniversary. But this came up that you know he says you know Apple has a strong platform in Siri and in the iPhone and Amazon doesn't. Well, like all that takes is Amazon having an Alexa app potentially for iOS. There's already a third-party one I think all three of us use. There's There are ways that, that Amazon can get more places and we're seeing that at CES. And yes, some of that stuff's going to be vaporware because it's CES. Like, stop emailing us now. We know, we know that happens. Um, I think a lot of people write off CES completely for that. I think that's the wrong approach. But you cannot deny that Amazon is out there in more places, out there doing more things than Apple. And is Apple going to catch up, or is Apple going to to, to sit this this round out? Um, I think the three of us agree that Apple needs to make a move here. I agree with the CES argument to a point, but when Ford are integrating Amazon's assistant product into their cars, that's it's not, a real thing. <laughs> that's not vaporware, right? Like maybe yeah. you know somebody who made something that looks like the Echo right, but is a wall lamp and it's a company you've never heard of before, then yeah, I mean, I can get what you're saying. But for deciding that they're going to integrate this instead of maybe using some of their sync features that they've been creating over the last 10 years, that's a pretty big deal. With Microsoft, by the way. Yeah, the F-150 is not vaporware. Like these are real things. And so that's that's one reason I find the Phil Schiller quote a little bit troubling. Uh, He says that, you know, Siri is great because as the assistant with you, we've heard that line from people for a while now. Uh, Schiller's not the first one to say it. 
And that that is true. Like there is value in that. And it is true that for the most part, unless I go out and buy a new pickup truck, I'm from Tennessee, it could happen. But unless I go buy a new Ford or buy a smartwatch with this in it, then my access to the Amazon ecosystem is limited to my office and to my kitchen where I have the Echo. So he's right about that. And I think he's right that there are certain circumstances where you really want to have a display. And he really hammers on this in this back channel interview that Mm -hmm. Siri is like useful because it can surface stuff on a display. And that's, again, that's not wrong. That's not incorrect. But I do think it's incomplete that a lot of stuff, like the reason that Amazon has seen success is there are times where you don't care about a screen and that I think why these things end up in kitchens is because people have, you know, their elbow deep in making muffins and they need to shout a question to a cylinder and the cylinder can answer them and it gets it right like 100% of the time. They are different markets to a degree. There's overlap, but they are slightly different markets. And there are rumors that a future Echo will have a display. I'm telling you, if they do that, like I'm going to upgrade the one in my kitchen because there are times where I want that. And he's right that Siri has access to a bunch of your content, a bunch of information that Amazon doesn't. Amazon doesn't have my photo library. They don't have my uh, calendars and contacts like Siri does. But that's that hasn't stopped me from using uh, Amazon's product heavily. So he, I think he's sort of like, I think his argument's a little a little off base, and it's um it's one of those things we were talking yesterday. Like I, I don't know if if. Schiller blasting the Echo is like Apple being coy, like Steve Jobs saying no one wants to watch a video on an iPod and then three months mm-hmm. later announces the video iPod. Or if it's they really don't get it and they really think they are making the right decision. And uh, I, I can't tell which it is. I hope that they're just being coy because I think they should be in this space. But it is a little concerning that you know maybe Schiller's writing this off and they don't need to be. Yeah, this l- lends into like another kind of concern that I have right now, which is like the the two kind of agreed upon strands of technology that the majority of the large companies are going down are either voice assistant technology, like voice assistant machines, you know, like these dedicated boxes, or and VR. And right now, Apple seems to be downplaying both of these. Right, that they yeah. say that, that the canisters are not in, are not what we want. What we want is something that is in our pockets all the time, which may be, you know, to add a strand onto that, which is, yes, I understand could be very good, but my argument is where do people actually use these things? I don't think people use them on the subway. So I don't know how necessary it is. I think having something that has a ton of microphones in it because it's a big tube is maybe better depending on where it wants to be used. Like the places I want to use this stuff is in my home and I can like cover my entire home with one of the big cylinders and one of the little ones, right? No matter what it is. And I'm going to cover the majority of my house as long as I speak loudly enough. And then the other is virtual reality, which most likely is just going to have effects in gaming, but we don't know. Um, And these seem to be like two of the biggest things that are are happening right now. And Apple is downplaying both of them and doesn't appear to have anything in those areas. And this, uh, this is either a good thing, right? That they're focusing on something which is going to end up being more important, like the way that we know Apple to be right. Like, Oh, that Mm -hmm. they're working on AR and we don't know it yet because we haven't seen Apple's product. But when we do, we realize that everything else is silly. Or they're missing. And 
that they end up in a Microsoft situation or a Facebook situation right. where they miss the boat on something and that it ends up hurting them in the long run. I actually don't know what one it is, but I feel like that I'm I'm willing to ask the question more than in previous times. And it is important to remember that like Apple, like if you look at the the iPod and the iPhone in particular, uh, and the Apple Watch to a lesser degree, Apple is okay sitting on the sidelines watching a market figure itself out and then they come in. So like they weren't the first music player, they weren't the first smartphone, they weren't the first like smartwatch wearable thing. Mm-hmm. And they come in and they usually do it better. Uh, it's usually more expensive, but they end up you know dominating in one way or another. So th- this conversation we are having, um, I agree with you. It's worth it's worth having, and be- I think it's particularly interesting this time because voice cylinders have like taken off super quickly, like more quickly than these other product categories did. I think. And uh, is this another case of Apple letting the market figure itself out, or maybe they were caught flat-footed? They weren't working on this at all, and then all of a sudden Amazon comes out with this product that a lot of people, at least nerds, seem to really like, and. Now they got to deal with it. Like, I don't know what's going on internally, of course, but there is that conversation to be had that Apple does this. They wait for things to settle out enough where they can come in and, mm. and, um, and dominate. So maybe that's happening now. Maybe that's happening with these other things, but maybe it's not. And until they ship something, we don't know. So we have to have this conversation. Um, but it is interesting. And that's like, uh, I said this yesterday on a show that, the like that's when I will worry about Apple when they when they do miss something big like mobile like Microsoft missed mobile and I don't think they've missed anything big yet but uh, there's always that concern right that they do miss this or they do miss if VR takes off and you know Robert Scoble yesterday yesterday said that Apple is going to ship AR glasses this year so who knows what's happening but that like wait and see approach like works to a degree but if things get too far out of hand and Apple's not there. Uh, then that's when I really start to worry. I think especially about assistants. Um, we can all agree that that it's convenient to have one on a phone, and it's convenient to have one with the display. But it, it all all the you know these discussions they all come down for me at least to a simple question: Do you believe it's convenient also to have an assistant in your home that is separate from the phone? So to have an assistant that can hear you from a distance, that can talk more loudly, and that doesn't need a display. Because to say, well, yeah, but Siri has the display, that's missing the point. We can all agree that it's convenient to have an assistant on your main device. But is it also useful to have a separate voice that can hear you inside your home, no matter where you are? And I'm going to follow up to the question with, is it also useful to have an assistant that can talk to a bunch of different services, a bunch of different products and apps instead of limited domains? Because we shouldn't, I think a lot of people, they're trying to downplay the Echo and Amazon. I'm not saying that it's a huge threat to Apple right now, because a lot of people reply with some kind of straw man to this problem. It's not like Amazon is replacing Apple or that the Echo is winning. Yeah, it's in just the grand a con- scheme of things, they probably haven't exact- sold that many either. Yeah, exactly. It's just, a, you know, if you're a product person, 
I think people inside Apple are, are, are having these discussions. Yeah. So we can all agree that Siri on the iPhone is awesome, is convenient, works with a bunch of different languages, and it's got an interface, and arguably we can say it is getting better. Mm-hmm. But the flip side is, when you're inside your home and you're free to talk, you don't have people staring at you because you're talking to an assistant, is it a good idea to have an assistant that can talk more loudly, that is a dedicated device that its only job is to be a voice only, not a voice first, a voice only product? And I think the answer is yes. Yeah. Because as we're seeing... Um, it's not like it's just you know a bunch of podcasters are falling in love with this new product. Um, it's gaining mindshare. It's been on TV shows. It's been on the news. It's a good idea, and I think Apple is thinking about this. And I think it's you know it, it would be silly to say no, 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 Apple is never going to do that because we have Siri because we have a display. Yes, we have a display, which is awesome. But is it also useful to have a speaker to have an assistant that is only a voice that replies to you? And I think we're going to see Siri in this form eventually because it is a good idea. Funnily enough, one of my favorite things about the Echo is one of the things that we all laughed at when we first saw it, that it is in a fixed place in my home because I have a location to direct my query to, which if, if I'm using my iPhone for this, it's not necessarily where... I think it is at all times, right? Like it moves. And I understand that it's good that you might have it on your body, but there's something about it, you know, my echo being in a place in the kitchen that like if I'm watching TV, I can turn around and talk to it. Like there is just something that makes sense to me in that it is in a fixed place in which I direct my question towards. And I actually quite like that. Um, and it's funny, you know, this is this is a, a thing that we're all... Uh, we're all guilty of judging things before we try them, and, and uh, I think the Echo was was definitely one of those. Today's episode is also brought to you by our friends over at Ministry of Supply. I think it's fair to say that we have all experienced and, and experienced spending a lot of time in uncomfortable clothing. You know, I remember spending many summers uh, on the tube in a full suit going to work. You know, forty hours a week we spend in clothing that can be uncomfortable, restrictive, unbreathable, and then also but at the end of the day, they're all wrinkled as well. This is, these are the problems that Ministry of Supply has set out to fix. They make performance clothes for the modern-day workplace. Launched by MIT engineers, Ministry of Supply combines human-centric research, performance technology, and tailored design to create wear-to-work clothes for men and women, like dress shirts, blouses, and pants. Their garments work with your body to provide maximum comfort, combined with features like temperature control, wrinkle resistance, and extreme stretch to give you a sharp, professional look all day long. Ministry of Supply's all-season sweater features seamless ventilation zones at the hotspots of your body. It regulates body temperature to keep you warm, but not overheated all day long. And see, the thing is, like, you hear these features and you think, oh, these are really going to stick out. Like, I'm going to look like the person who's wearing gym clothes to work. No, they use this great technology 
to integrate it into clothes that fit perfectly in the workplace. All of Ministry of Supplies stuff looks fantastic. It looks super professional, but you also get all of these added benefits. I'm a big fan of what they do. The the clothes that I've had sent to me from them are super comfortable, including that sweater. And I mean, I've wore it like with a big coat over the top and it has these like convenient holes in like the back and stuff like that where it looks like it's part of the design, but also what it's doing is giving you ventilation and it keeps you nice and and temperature controlled. Ministry of Supply also makes socks now too. The smart address socks are made of coffee fiber that wicks sweats and absorbs odor throughout the day. They also provide extreme cushion with more padding than most gym socks. Ministry of Supply offers free shipping, free returns, and a fantastic 100-day no-questions-asked return policy. I love companies that do that. You can find out more by going to ministryofsupply.com slash connected, and you'll get a free pair of moisture-wicking smart address socks with your first purchase. That's ministryofsupply.com slash connected, where you can find out more. Or visit any of their nine retail stores in locations including San Francisco, Atlanta, and Chicago. Mention this show and you'll get a discount. Thank you so much to Ministry of Supply for their support of this show. All right, so Stephen, you got your hands on one of these little Apple Watch stands, right? Yeah, so the uh, Elago W3, it is a silicone Apple Watch stand that looks like a tiny baby Macintosh. And so, uh, of course, I bought it. It was like 15 bucks on Amazon or something. I showed up this weekend. I put a little review video together over the weekend. And uh, I'm... Uh, I have used since I guess since nightstand mode, which is what Watch OS two, I uh, have used uh, uh, a stand for my watch at night on my on my bedside table. So it puts it up, and you know it looks like a little alarm clock. If you bump the table or really just even touch it, almost uh, the watch will wake up and give you the time in a very uh, low light situation. So it's not like blinding, which is really nice. You can set it to do the alarm with the buttons. I don't ever do that, but. Um, I've and I've used one from Studio Neat, the Material Dock. That's what I have on my nightstand table now. It has a phone and a watch stand, kind of in one. And I'm going to continue to use that. I really like that dock. But this one was just too adorable to uh, to pass up uh, spending some time with. So you drop the watch into it. It's cut out where the the face of the watch is the face of the Macintosh, and uh, it's just a lot of fun. So if you, if you are looking for an Apple Watch stand, don't want to spend a bunch of money and want something adorable. I would point you uh, point you to this thing. Yeah, I use the um, the Studio Neat Material Dock. The the, the I have uh, one of the ones for the phone and the watch, and then I have one for just the phone that I have on my desk. Um, and I I love it. Like I know that obviously Studio Neat are friends of the show, but this is a product that I was really looking for, and I'm a big fan of it. I think the best thing about it is that that kind of like it's not like adhesive but there's like this rubber stuff that they put on the bottom and mm-hmm. it keeps it completely stuck to the desk which is yeah it doesn't, without move, it doesn't move at all yeah which is yeah. fantastic so you can pick up your iphone and just take it straight out and you know you just pick it up and put it down uh and then the you know it's really nice to have the watch there and then the watch is in nice mode it's it's uh, i love that product mm-hmm. yeah i use the backing uh, valet iphone and watch of course you do you're so f- you're so fancy yeah, I like um, modern style docks and, you know, these kind of accessories. That doesn't use nightstand mode, does it? Because it holds the watch sort of vertically? No, I, I, I don't use nightstand mode because I wear the watch at night. Um, oh, so yeah. it's because of this that I decided to put this dock not in my bedroom on my nightstand, but um, in the kitchen slash living room where 
both Sylvia and I, if we need to, we can place our iPhones and watches when we need a quick charge. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, yeah, it looks nice. It's on an uh, IKEA piece of furniture, which is a you know nice contrast between the black uh, IKEA cabinet and the silver Apple style uh, dock. It's very so nice, fashionable. Yeah. I know. Wow. Yeah, I like that there are a lot of options for this thing that you can really pick something that, you know, looks the way you want it to look. Um, it's nice. I mean, nightstand mode, like, is something that it's, I mean, we have a clock in our room, right? Like, the, the watch is next to, it's next to my side of the bed. My wife can't see it. So it's it's nice for me, but it's something that, um, yeah, I think some people get more use out of than others. But it it's one of those things when Apple announces, like, this is uh, super clever. Like it's it's one of the things the watch kind of should do. It should be useful as a timepiece at night. So, uh, good job. The big the big news this week, though, shockingly, guys, was not Apple Watch stands. I know we could talk about it all day, but yesterday marked the ten year anniversary of the keynote in which Steve Jobs announced uh, announced the iPhone. I think I think the three of us agree that it was his finest performance, perhaps the best like product yeah. introduction. At least of our lifetimes that I can think of. No, no, perhaps, no, perhaps. Like yeah, it, it is, is the, the the single greatest product introduction. Um, and so we have uh, a bunch of links uh, in the show notes this week. Uh, Federico and I both put, uh, wrote some stuff about it, put some stuff together. Uh, we have a link to the video. If you have an hour, like just go watch the keynote again. It it's outstanding. If you have eight hours, you can listen to episode thirty of the prompt, which is the show that preceded this one. Doesn't last seven hours that no, episode. I'm it's, sure it's two. I listened to it this week. It's like two hour, two and a half hours long. Uh, where the three, well, the two of you, and then a very sick version of me walk through the keynote, and like it totally holds up. It's, um, I think, like the pr- the the single proudest I've ever been of is like a single podcast episode is this episode. Um. And then we also have the Wayback Machine uh, link for the original iPhone website, which I had like totally forgotten how it looks all black and like really crazy looking. Uh, but the original specs and you know Apple trying to make the phone look small, uh, some funny stuff there that that with age, you know, age makes everything funny. Um, so go check all that out if you haven't read or seen or listened to much about the iPhone anniversary. Like there's there's lots of good content out there. Um, but I wanted to, to see what y'all's first memories uh, of the iPhone, uh, uh, you know, what were your first reactions? What were your first thoughts? Um, Federico, what about you? Um, <laughs> this is uh, going to be bad for my reputation. I, I think I talked about this before, but there we go again. Um, the, I didn't watch the original iPhone presentation at the time. I had no idea what was going on. I'm pretty sure I didn't even know what Apple was. I mean, I knew what Apple was, but from, um, you know, heard from a friend kind of perspective. I knew that the Macintosh was a different type of computer, but I was not a tech nerd. I was in high school. I only cared about video games, basically, and music. Um, so I didn't own the original iPhone. Um, but that changed quickly. Uh, after high school, um, I tried my... I had a very short and unsuccessful university experience. I dropped out. I started my first job at an eBay uh, reseller shop. And my first boss, my first and only boss, actually, um, he was into the idea of buying an iPhone from the United States. So at the time, the first iPhone never actually launched in Italy. 
And that didn't stop a bunch of enterprising Italians from buying an iPhone on eBay and using one of the first um, jailbreaks slash unlock. I think the unlock system was based on the was made by a guy named Zebri, and the jailbreak was called the Z phone type of method, which basically allowed you to unlock the carrier um, of the iPhone and use it on different international carriers besides, you know, AT&T uh, in the United States. So I remember my boss, he, he found this guy on eBay and he bought two iPhones for some reason. It was the kind of lavish person who liked to spend money. So he bought two iPhones and I remember these two boxes coming into the store. I was working. Uh, these two boxes coming into the store and we opened the iPhones. I think it, there were two eight gigabyte models. Yeah. And inside the boxes were the AT&T SIMs uh, that the iPhone uh, came with. So I was very impressed by the, you know, dedication of this eBay seller. So my boss uses this iPhone for, for a while. And of course, I was in charge of looking up all of the jailbreak techniques because he was also a lazy person. He only, he only liked to spend money. So I, I did the research about the jailbreak. So I, you know, um, did the unlock thing on his phone and that's when I first tried Installer. So Installer was this, I remember it was like uh, the precursor of Cydia uh, you know, for the jailbreak. It was like an alternative app store before the app store that allowed you to install custom software on the iPhone. Um, you know, the first third-party apps and the first third-party tweaks. And it had a, I remember it had a blue icon. So couple of months pass it's now well into uh 2008 and the thing about my boss he was a weird guy um he was also very easily distracted so he used the iphone for a few months and then he i think he fell in love with some kind of different smartphone so it's like yeah i don't care about the iphone anymore um at that point i had bought an ipod touch because i was really into this idea of you know um uh, iPhone OS and what Apple was doing and so my boss wasn't, was not using his original iPhone anymore and I was like hey what if you what if you sell your iPhone to me I was like sure give me like a couple of hundred euros and you can have it um, so I bought an, an iPhone from my boss and I just fell in love with it um, until I bought the 3GS uh, in 2009 uh, so I used my 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 boss's original iPhone when the 3G actually came out. I didn't buy the iPhone 3G. I used the original iPhone until the 3GS in, that came out, in I think, in Italy in July 2009, back when iPhones used to launch in the summer. Um, so I used my original iPhone for about a year, I would say. And, you know, it was the beginning of, you know, my career. Eventually I was fired. I started Mac Stories and I started writing about iPhone apps. And yeah, I I actually regret not being into, you know, Apple News, not following the original presentation of Steve Jobs back then. Um, I watch it, of course, later. Um, But yeah, it was a a strange type of getting into the Apple scene, getting into this whole iPhone thing. Um, If anything, I mean, I'm thankful to my boss for... Uh, being that kind of person who buys an iPhone from an American on eBay, even if he cannot use it, and tells me that I should do the research to how to do the unlock. I'm thankful for that. 
because in it in his own weird way he got me into this whole thing and now i'm talking to you guys so there we go yeah i was already deep within at this point like i had ipods i was i watched the presentation on my imac um and I don't really remember much of watching the presentation. Like I believe I have a memory of, of watching the presentation, but it's one of those memories in which I can see myself, which means it's probably not true. Uh, what I do remember, though, uh, is like on that evening, showing family members different parts of it, like the the rubber band scrolling and stuff, and being like, "Look at this!" Like I, I just couldn't help but show people because I was so excited about it. Um, and then the other thing that I, I have a memory of is actually buying my iPhone, which uh, for, for us in the UK came much later. Um, it, we, we didn't get ours in June. It was more, I think it was more towards the end of that year um, of 2007. And it, I remember like having my brother, he, he left after school and he stood in line for me because I was working at the time and I went and kind of met him we were third in line and then the checkout system at the the car phone warehouse is what the store is called it's a chain of uh, cell phone stores here called the car phone warehouse they started when phones were in cars uh, their checkout system completely failed when the iPhone went on sale because it was like complete overload uh, so we had to pay in cash and uh, because we paid in cash, that was why I didn't buy the little um, Apple Bluetooth headset thing. I was just going to get that because I was just so excited about everything. I wanted all of it. Um, and I couldn't get out enough <laughs> cash to buy both things. So luckily, I dodged that bullet. Yeah, it wasn't a great uh, a great product. So I could call it, yeah, it's like the father of the AirPods, right? You know, It is. It's a great, great grandfather. Um, so I did not uh, watch the keynote the the day of. Of course, I wasn't live streaming. You know, following along with blogs. I was actually traveling, visiting family. Uh, I did work as an Apple retail employee at the time, so I remember like getting back to my like cell phone service and a bunch of people texting me, going crazy that Apple had done this this insane thing. Um, I went that evening to on like dial up like my aunt's house, like looking at those original iPhone web pages, like trying to just like squeeze every drop of information out of them, trying to like get my head around it. Um, I'm not quite sure when I, when I actually watched the keynote video, Apple was publishing them at that point, I think in iTunes, but it took a little while to get them. It wasn't like it is now. And I just remember being just really, uh, really blown away. I ended up uh, buying one about three, three or four weeks after they went on sale. So, like if you had been full time at the Apple Store for a set amount of time, you got a free one, and I missed that cutoff by like a week and a half or like no. two weeks. Oh no! And I begged my assistant manager, who was a friend of mine, is still a friend of mine. I was like, "Please, like, you got to let me in on this," and he couldn't do it. And so what he did do is they were coming in very slowly, and he put, he set one aside for me, um, which he probably wasn't supposed to do, and and then so I was able to purchase one, and so I was very early. I've owned uh, every one of them since, except the 5C and the 5S. Uh, I did switch to Android for a little while in like 2011, but I've switched back. Man, I forgot that. You were a droid person. I carried uh, a Palm Pre Plus for oh, like three or four months and then a droid for like a year um, and then and then came back. And uh, it's, you know, so it's it's always been, it's it's hard, it's hard to believe it's it's been 10 years. It's really hard to to overstate the impact that it's had. Uh, not only on Apple, I mean, obviously Apple, it's been huge. Their stock is way up, 
uh, in that prompt 30, uh, <laughs> I, I shared how much I sold my employee stock for. And if I'd held on to it, uh, I would have made a lot more money. But um, I wouldn't own it now anyway, since I cover it for a living. But uh, it was kind of funny to hear that. Now you got to own it, man. Boost that price up, right? That's, That's right. Well. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, the whole thing is just a scam. Uh, but the three of us really were like the perfect age for this. Like we can remember life before it. Oh, and, yeah. You know, I was, um, you know, I was 20 at this announcement, 21 when it came out. And I, it is really similar to like people who, you know, whose parents bought them an Apple II when they were in middle school or even elementary school, and they learned to program in basic on an Apple II, right? Or they got uh, a Commodore, or they got, you know, a PC. Like, those very early computers, you know, people who are now in their 40s or even, you know, early 50s who were kids during the personal PC revolution, like, we are that age for the smartphone. Yeah. And uh, I wrote a little bit about this yesterday, and I think all three of us, like, we owe so much, not only to the iPhone, but to what it created right to what it made possible so things like podcasting they existed before apple had put it into itunes and the ipod in 2005 but it wasn't until the iphone and the app store their podcasting at least in at least tech podcasting really was accessible to a lot more people and uh, i'd forgotten this <laughs> I actually found the art the article remember when apple didn't like rejected the podcast client the person who wrote it because like replicated yes. iTunes. Yeah. Uh, that was super fun. Obviously very different today. Now the iPhone is a home to a rich ecosystem of podcast clients. And if you look at relay stats, I mean, the iPhone just dominates the way people listen to our shows. Um, and things like social media, right? Things like Twitter, like the three of us met more or less on Twitter. No, and- that's a hundred percent how it happened. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like <laughs> my pitch to Federico to join me and you was a direct message on Twitter. Yes, yes, you know? it was. And uh, you know the the people that we work with and like the blogs that Federico and I write, like those are all possible because of the web being in our pocket all the time. Like I don't know about Mac stories, but on five twelve, the the majority of my traffic is mobile now. Like that that crossed oh, yeah. a couple of years ago, and that's a real thing. And you have to think about like mobile first design and mobile first content, like all that stuff wouldn't be here if, if the iPhone had been a success. And, you know, I was just, I was just thinking through like what line of work, like what part of the economy, what part of the world hasn't been touched by the smartphone. Right. And it's really hard to come up with an example. Like, yeah, it's just everywhere. I don't know if it's the same for you guys, but I was thinking about this, uh, this week, especially. I remember life before the smartphone, before the you know the internet everywhere. But it's I also don't really remember it. Like it almost doesn't make any sense uh, that there was a time where you couldn't look up you know maps on your phone or yeah. talk yeah. to anyone for free. Like these things, they were started, kickstarted by the iPhone and by the App Store, but. I don't know, maybe it's the fact that we're getting older, uh, could be, and maybe it's the fact that it's been 10 years, um, but it, like, I struggle to remember how it used to be. Like, I remember when my parents and I went on road trips, we had to actually take out, you know, fold out maps with us, and now you just walk out and you fire up Google Maps or Apple Maps on your phone and, you know, you can get to anywhere. 
Yeah. So it, it is difficult for me to remember how it used to be because it's been such a fundamental change to society, to the way that we do everything. I struggle to remember how it used to be. I know I used to have other phones. I know it used to be different. It just doesn't make sense when I think about it. Yeah, I agree. Like It's like I, I know that I lived that life. Yes. Right? Like I know I did because I was 18 <laughs> yeah. years old. Right? Yes. So like I have memories of my life, many memories where I didn't have a smartphone. But I now think of it in like a <laughs> how how was that true? Exactly. How was it possible? <laughs> my first trip that I took abroad on my own, like it was with my girlfriend at the time, the iPhone 3G came out the day before. So, like, every trip I have ever taken where I am in control of where I'm going has been powered by GPS in my smartphone. Yeah. I never took a trip before that. And, like, and I mm. can't imagine doing that because it's, like, for me, it's, like, knowing where I am on a map is how I travel. And without that, right. it's, like, I mean, I can read a map. But it, I'm way less confident about what I'm doing and where I'm going. Like with my iPhone, I'm able to walk somewhere, go somewhere without like putting constant focus to the map. And that yeah. is like such a powerful thing. And it's one of the, just one of the myriad of things in, in ways in which the iPhone has touched and changed my life. Yeah, it, it really is such a such a change like so fundamentally different before and after and you know people had taste of it before right like if you were cool like me in college and carried a newton so you could do your email uh, mm -hmm. in class um <laughs> you know those of us who were you know really ahead of the curve had a little bit of it but for like what the iphone really has done is that it has given like what apple calls in the original web page high technology to like to to so many people and like, yes it should be more affordable and yes there's still parts of the world where it's not made an impact the way it has in other places but it has it has taken technology and put it in the hands of more people than ever i mean how many people just have a smartphone as their only computer and they that the only way to the internet they have is through an iphone or through some other smartphone like that is a serious change like economic social change in the world and in 2007 it was just this uh clever you know phone that you could you know prank call starbucks on if you were steve jobs but i think even then like if you read interviews with apple at the time or or you know there's some videos of steve jobs you know making the rounds like i think they knew it was a big deal but i think it was impossible to really really tell i mean i, I certainly didn't foresee it coming and i don't, I don't really think anyone really did uh, understand just what it what it could do in really just a short period of time. I mean, really, like I think by the time we were at, like the iPhone four or four S, like it was it was turning the corner from something that like nerdy people had to like regular everyday people, like people who have no idea what really FM is. Like it's hard to believe they're out there, but they are. Are there um, those people? Do they even exist? It's it's hard to say, but you know you know what I'm saying. Like it, it made the turn. And and now it is making a turn uh, into countries and into markets and into parts of the world that have never had technology before. You know, we went from, and this is why there's all this angst, right? We went from the the PC and the Mac to to mobile devices, and and there are people on either side of that divide, and there's lots of 
you know, lots of angst there, but, but is now moving into parts of the world where that divide doesn't exist because the personal PC never ma- couldn't make a dent there, right? Due to infrastructure, due to cost, but the, but the smartphone can, and that is really incredible. So this is uh, this is the first but the first of the two birthdays of the iPhone, right? We'll, we'll be talking yep. about this again in like six months or something. Yep, June uh, June twenty ninth. Happy birthday, iPhone! Oh man, I feel like I need a hug right oh, now. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, just just well. having a moment. Yeah. <laughs> This week's episode is also brought to you by our friends over at Blue Apron, the company on a mission to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone while supporting a more sustainable food system in which they set the highest standards for ingredients, allowing them to build a community of home chefs. The home chefs part is interesting, right? So for less than $10 a meal, with Blue Apron, you're going to get seasonal recipes delivered straight to your home with all of the ingredients that you need, all pre-proportioned with these great step-by-step cards. You can prepare these meals in less than 40 minutes. It allows you to become a chef at home. You will learn skills. You will be following these recipe cards, but every time you're doing them, maybe you're cooking every day or a couple of times, you know, two, maybe three or four times a week with Blue Apron. Every time you do this, you are learning skills. You are learning chopping skills. You are learning what this means. You are learning what that means. You know, you're going to learn all of these skills that will help you become a better chef at home home you're able to customize your recipes every week based on your dietary preferences and you can also choose delivery options that fit your needs there's no weekly commitment you get the deliveries when you want them and blue apron delivers to 99 percent of the continental united states blue apron makes sure that you have fresh ingredients and by doing this they are supporting that sustainable food system allowing you to make incredible meals Blue Apron sets the highest quality standards for their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run fisheries, and ranches. New recipes are created by Blue Apron's culinary team, and they are not repeated of any year, so you're going to get a ton of variety, different types of food to eat. Like, for example, listen to this. You could maybe cook things like creamy shrimp spaghetti with broccoli and mayo lemon, Thai chicken noodle soup with yellow curry paste and mushrooms, or potato and broccolini samosas with coconut lentils and yogurt sauce. That is some vast variety in what you'll be able to chow down on with Blue Apron. Check out this week's menu and get three meals for free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com connected. This is free food, ladies and gentlemen. Go to blueapron.com connected. Go and try it out right now. I am sure that you will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So do not wait. Visit blueapron.com connected. I want to thank Blue Apron for their support of this show and Relay FM. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. So I think, was it last week? Um, there was a post on Medium about Medium. It's like the, the most Medium something could be. Uh, about the title is called Renewing Medium's Focus. And Ev Williams basically outlines that Medium's business model is not working. They are changing business model. They are moving away from ads and looking at potentially doing a more direct support model. But the thing about this post is uh, they kind of say that they want a new business model without outlining what the business model is. And they've decided to fire all of their salespeople. Fine. Scale down the company and then say, we're not sure what we're going to do yet, but trust us, we got this. Mm. This isn't, isn't, I think, a very strong showing from Medium. 
Reminds me of the gif that Stephen uh, often shares of the garbage truck on fire, <laughs> just dri- <laughs> driving. Uh, like, I don't know, have a good I, feeling about this. Again, Medium is a company full of people. Uh, we feel sorry for the people that lost their yes. jobs, of course. And uh, of course I, we do. my understanding is, you know, these. When, I, I like seeing this, like when you see something like this happen, and then you see tweets from like people at Tumblr who are like, "Hey, come work for us!" Like. Although I don't know what Tumblr's standing is right now with was it Altaba we have on the uh, horizon? Yes. Yeah, they went. Uh, yeah, mm. Altaba, everyone. Altaba, and we find everything we need in there. Anyway, so one of the things that's really interesting to me about this is Medium's prior business model was trying to get publishers to come to Medium and publish there. We spoke about Back Channel earlier in the show. That is Stephen Levy's Medium blog, which only exists on Medium, right? Like, that is where it is. Um, yeah. And Medium have been trying to convince companies to, like, cross-post and create original content to put there. Um, and there's even... Uh, I, I wish I could remember where this was, but, like, I saw a link of somebody, like, who... A publisher who started their new Medium thing yeah on the on the very day day. (laughs) Uh, so this is a a a case of left hand not knowing what right hand is doing right because obviously the team who is trying to encourage content was still encouraging content not knowing that they were about to lose their jobs yes that's that's really that's really rough rough, really rough so i wanted to talk about this because there is some there are some threads here which i'm seeing running through a few different places one of them was Mm. Like a couple of months ago, um, I saw a piece on Daring Fireball um, that was about. It was linked to. Uh, John was linking to something that Andy Bio wrote, where he's talking about how indie blogging seems to be changing. Like there isn't as much focus put on it anymore, and that maybe people are moving more towards social networks to kind of get their messages across. But mm. Andy makes the case for independent blogging and writing. Because like nobody can shut him down, nobody can control what he says, nobody can control the URLs that he uses. Like it's his place to do whatever he wants in, and it seems that more people these days are moving to different channels, different networks to share their stuff. So I've been thinking about this, and uh, I have a question for you both: Is there less independent blogging now? Because frankly, it's becoming harder and harder to make money in that world. Mm. You know, with a lot of the, the the tough web ad stuff that exists, which maybe the two of you can speak to a little bit if you want. I don't know if you want to. Um, and is it because it's getting harder to make a living doing this that people are pushing their content towards platforms like Twitter and Medium and maybe YouTube and podcasts because you're able to maybe get your name out there you're able to be on social networks which are maybe at least likely to get you more fame or notoriety where it might not be able to secure you as much money especially in the case of the social networks it's a very complex question that requires a very complex answer um first of all i believe there's been a shift from bloggers to vloggers so a lot of people are now on youtube a lot of people that 10 years ago would have probably written something now they're shooting a video about it the second part of my answer is, um, I think so, social networks and social platforms like Twitter, Facebook, and Medium to an extent, they have been great equalizers. They have provided millions of people with an easy way to write, to share content, 
whether it's a video, a picture, or text. And it, they've been, you know, they have succeeded because of the, you know, the easy way to share or just the easier way to build a social graph and to find your friends or an audience. But I think there's a, we got to differentiate between blogging as a job and blogging as a technology. I think there's fewer people maybe trying to pursue indie blogging as a job, but I think the technology is, of course, still around. It hasn't gone anywhere. In fact, we have better tools today than ever, whether it's, you know, setting up your own server is easy today, is easier today. WordPress is better than ever. And there's, you know, all kinds of other tools you can use for blogging. I do believe there's part of it is a perception issue that fewer people are trying to make money by writing online. But maybe it's also a trend. Maybe it's also objectively true that fewer people are trying to monetize indie blogging. And I believe part of the problem there is a simple, you know, simple economics. There's just more supply than demand. Um, so we see some people shifting to YouTube, other people shifting to other type of online careers. Um, I still believe it is necessary if you want to if you want to make writing so blogging your job it is an utmost necessity that you own your stuff that you don't cede control of the technology to other people uh which is also the reason why i have been in the news if you will lately because of <laughs> i was wondering if you're going to bring this up <laughs> <laughs> I I have been on the New York Times <laughs> because yeah. of my decision <laughs> to to stop using Google AMP, which is Mr. Their... Vitici. I'm sorry we didn't call you Mister at the beginning. Yeah, talk yeah, to my true. assistant. I'm uh, to schedule our next recording. This is the reason why I decided to remove Google AMP support for Mac stories. I didn't like the way that Google was rewriting my links in Google search. So there's a whole discussion to be made about controlling technology and, you know, your stuff and your content, use open formats. But the to answer your question, Mike, I think technologically indie blogging is still around and better than ever. Economically, there's been a lot of changes that contribute to the different landscape that we have today. So do you, but do you think though that people are moving more towards networks though like in general? Yes, because I yeah. think we live in a more diversified world now than 10 years ago. I think it's easier for a kid in China to try to find an audience on a network that is allowed through the firewall. I think it's easier for a teenager to post some thoughts on Twitter or Facebook. I think it's easier for someone to go viral using YouTube and Facebook. Or taking a screenshot of notes and posting it on Instagram. Exactly. I think yeah. these networks, they remove a lot of barriers because there is a barrier. There is a, a, a an, an audience barrier. There is a technological barrier to setting up a blog, setting up your own domain, which is why I believe we got to differentiate between doing this just to share and doing this to make a living. The technology is the same. The goal and the time that you got to sink into this thing is profoundly different. Yeah, you know, I've been I've been blogging at 512 Pixels for over 8 years, 8 years now. It's a 
a really long time. Um, and so I've seen some of this, some of this take place over the, the, the arc of my own blogging career, if you want to call it that, where I tried really hard, like in like 2010 and 2011, I really put my head down and like tried to see if I could make five fill pixels into a job. And the answer then was no, that, that I couldn't do it. And honestly, the answer today still is no, that, you know, five twelve pixels, it makes money. Some months it makes better money than others. And, but it, it's not a job. You know, Relay FM is my job. Relay FM is what pays my mortgage and keeps food on my table and keeps my kids in jackets. How many jackets do they need? <laughs> they grow so fast. <laughs> okay. so, grow I feel daily. like there's a bigger discussion to be had about jackets, <laughs> but maybe let's save it for another yeah, time. We'll I, feel, I, I feel like you feel strongly about jackets. Yeah. But, uh, we, you know, we just had to buy up. new coats for everyone, so it's on my mind. Um, and, and so I think... So like for me, like the way 512 Pixels makes money is really simple. I have a sidebar ad run from a third-party company who I've, I've partnered with for like five years now, and it doesn't make much money. It makes enough to cover the hosting. Like the site with just the sidebar ad for me breaks even. And any money that I make each month is either through uh, RSS ads, which have risen and fallen in popularity over the time I've been doing them. They're doing okay right now but for i think overall that that business model is is hurting i think a lot of people who have blogs who sell our set sponsorships are struggling with that um i make money the other ways like affiliate links on amazon like if you click that link under my video to buy the adorable macintosh apple watch stand i'll get a cut of that and like i'm not ashamed of that whatever like if you don't like that strip strip my code off that's that's so ethically wrong yeah you're just trying to boost the sales of Wow, Dogs. you should you should yeah. be ashamed of yourself. <laughs> how, how can you buy jackets with that dirty money? I know. I know. Yeah, you're, <laughs> dirty, you're putting dirty that dirty money. money on your children's shoulders, man. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so for me, Five Twelve Pixels is a part of of my business. It's a part of my income, but it's not the time I put into it. Honestly, if I were to be brutally honest, is not worth the money I make from it. I do it because I love it and I do it because it's a it's a place for me to get thoughts into the world. But blogging for me is not is not the business that it is for other people. It's still like a like and again, and I don't mean this in a disparaging way in any sense, but it's it still has remained more of like a hobby type project for you. Yeah. Right. Like I said, relay like if you look at the hours I spend during the work week, the vast majority are relay. And five twelve is a is a fun distraction from that. Now what I have done over the last year is move the Five Twelve Pixels brand and expand it into YouTube, and for all the reasons you guys just talked about, right? That there's an audience there, that my content really works well on video, that I can write about stuff, but if I can show people and I can be funny on video and I can make things that are interesting to watch, then they do well, and the YouTube channel does do well, and it, you know, again, it's not paying a lot of bills but the youtube channel does make money it's it's not a lot it's really hard to make money on youtube unless you're enormous but it's making some and it's making enough for me to justify doing it to an extent um and i think like all of that stuff like if someone who's been doing it for eight years like mike and i own an extremely successful podcast business which we're going to talk about in a second like someone who has been doing it this long who has an audience 512's readership is bigger than ever like 2016 was the most pages i've done ever in a year i've got more rss subscribers than ever 
it's harder than ever to make money at it. And I think that hurts independent blogging if you look at independent blogging as a way, as a job. And I think, I honestly think that's the wrong way to look at it. There are people who can do that, right? There's people like Hotkey and Gruber who, and Jason Snell who, who, you know, blog and do podcasts for a living, but it started as a, as a, as writing, it started as a blog. I think that window is closed. I think that time has passed. I think that it's really hard to make that work now, but I agree with you, Federico, that independent blogging in the sense of I'm really interested in something and I just want to share it with the world, that that is richer than ever. And if you have niche content, like the pen addict, you know, Brad Dowdy has made a, a, a career for himself in the pen space and with his company, Notco. Million page views a month. I just have to throw that in. That's humongous. It's crazy. Um, I have a niche in, it's much smaller than pens and paper, but I've carved a niche out for myself in like the Apple historian realm. And you know, that limits the size of 512. 512 is bigger than ever, but I think it could be bigger if I were broader. And I just don't want to be broader. I don't have to be. So I, I talk about esoteric things and the people who are interested in that love it and people who aren't interested in it quit reading me years ago. And that's fine. You can find your spot. You can find what you're good at. You can hone your skill. But I think if you expect it to make a, a business out of it, that's really hard. And like that has nothing to do with the platform, right? Like, you can be on WordPress, you can own it, which is what I like. I like owning my content, like that I can have a database of all my stuff. But, you know, if that stuff is scary or like difficult or like too expensive, like there's lots of good hosted options and you can go do it. Like just go start writing, go start something. And that, I agree with you, Federico, is easier than ever and the tools are better than ever. And I think like as a thing, blogging is fine. Uh, YouTube is an interesting example because no matter how big you are with YouTube, there is money there immediately, right? Like monetization is like built in to the analytics. Like the the, the promise of money is there immediately. All you right. need to do is get the views. And that isn't the case with other types of independent stuff, right? So I think that's one of the reasons that YouTube is starting to win out, right? Like Federico said, and I agree that like there seems to be more people vlogging than blogging, right? There seems to be that's the thing that's happening now is because if if what you're looking to do is try and make some money from your side project, then of course you're going to consider the platform that has monetization built in a standard right. for everyone. Yeah. It's available to everyone. All they mm -hmm. need to do is get the views on their videos. Yeah, just use uh, clickbait like Mike. Yeah, like I love it. You know, I'm I'm all about it, and I I bait all of my videos. Uh, yeah, clickbait is, really is, a, is a, a really a thing, a thing I stand by that Casey Neistat said about clickbait, which is that it's uh, enticing but not false. Yeah, I, I'm down with that, and I think it's interesting too. Like, and I, I do want to talk about relay and talk about the network effect, but the the shift from writing to video, like video, is hard. At least it is for me. Like. And part of that is that I have really high standards for myself. Like I, like I'm not one, like I, I can't just sit down in front of a camera and just talk. Like anything that I produce is like hours of me saying the same thing over and over and like uh -huh. picking the one time I said it that I like. You're not, you're not one of these people that just walks around with their iPhone in the street, right? That's what you're saying. No, I wouldn't be one of those. No, uh, just, just cretins. Because I don't have that gift. I don't have that skill set. Like I'm awkward and like not funny and I have to work to be unawkward and funny. Uh, <laughs> but so many people... So many people are really good at that. And so like there's monetization and some people just find that really comfortable where a lot of people find writing really difficult. I mean, Mike, you and I are different in this way where I enjoy writing 
I like to think I'm good at it. I like to think that I've improved. Um, but the way that I solve problems, the way that I think about things is I write them out and I don't, I don't, I don't process verbally very well. That's why I repeat myself on podcasts endlessly. I need to write it out first to think about it. And, um, and so for me, blogging was a better fit. But what's great about all this stuff is there are, there's all these different channels, right? And if Medium can get their act together, and I hope they can, and they can figure out a way to let people make money and, and be successful, then that's great. And like blogging needs that. Like right now, if you want like some backed blogging thing, you have to open a Patreon and, and your numbers are public and that's weird. Um, but if they can create an, a YouTube-like system for writing, like, that's great. Like, thumbs up, like, way to go, Medium. I hope someone can make that work because blogging needs that. But it's it's just a very different approach than how it's traditionally been done. So I just want to, just before we wrap up, I want to touch on something, which is, right, we're talking about, like, people should be independent and stuff. And we own a company where people produce content for us, right? Which is strange because... The people that have their shows on our network, they are part of Relay FM. But uh, my my kind of feeling on this is that we do our very best to give everybody uh, the adequate amount of independence that they need, right, to get their stuff done. We work with people to make all of our stuff better. But you know, really, I mean, this is just something we talk about with everyone. If they want to go, if some if a show wants to leave, then we'll do everything we can to help people leave. Like the content that our hosts produce is their content we just give them the tools and the place and and kind of the processes underlying it all to make it happen is that fair Stephen? to say no it is i think what we've tried to do is create an environment and create a set of tools for people to do their own thing like you know sometimes we get questions about you know, a topic on a show or a sponsor wants to know what a show is going to be about. And like the truthful answer is we don't know because we don't exercise editorial control. And we have some, some guidelines, right? Like you can't say we have a naughty word list mm-hmm. uh, and don't say those words or you're going to get bleeped or knocked out of the master feed. But like, even then, like that's, that's all we've got. We, we, I think have created a space where people can come in and be creative and like try things and talk about things they're interested in. And, use our CMS and use our tools and have access to our designer and access to our Slack. And, uh, and for, you know, and for most of the shows we can monetize them and we sell ads, you know, Mike, you and I do that for the hosts. They get a cut, we get a cut. And I think it's been really successful. You know, we haven't had a show leave. We've had shows turn over and shows come to an end and stuff. We've never had anyone leave. And that I'm sure that will happen one day. And, and I agree with you. We will do everything we can to give that person access to their content, to help them land on their feet wherever they end up, if they want our help. Um, because at the end of the day, like I, I, that content, like it's their work, right? Like I'm not on, you aren't on our 25 shows. It's people doing their own outlines, doing their own research, doing their own recording, you know, using our editors or, or the, doing their own editing, it is, we've just created a framework for people to, to create within. And I remember when we first started Relay, like the, our very first conversations were like, that's what we wanted to build. We wanted to build, we wanted to build a company, we wanted to build a network and we wanted to have jobs, but we wanted to cr- really create a, a, a space for people to work within. And that is 
something that I think is a little unusual in podcasting, uh, where a lot of networks um, have like complete editorial control over their shows. Like it's a, it's a very different business, right? If you're doing NPR style stuff like Gimlet or, or Slate or those people, um, totally different business model, not any better, not any worse than ours, just different. Um, but this is how we've chosen to do it because at, at the heart of it, like at the end of the day, you and I, Mike and, and, you know, and Federico and Jason and everyone else, like we're all creators. Like we all want to make stuff like you and I have a podcast network. So you and I can make podcasts, Right, like mm-hmm. we needed a place to put our stuff, and we've been able to scale it up to other people, and so we give them the tools that we want to have, and we give them the freedom that we want to have, and um, I think it's been, I think it's worked out really well. And one last thing before we do wrap up, because I guess it is related to this this topic, I think, is that Manton Reese is uh, currently working on a Kickstarter campaign to generate. Like, I find it's hard to explain. Like, it's like Twitter hosted somewhere else or something. Can you help me with that? Because I've, I've backed this project <laughs> because I, I like what he's trying to do, but I, I, I'm struggling to understand the product that he's making. Yeah. So it's, and I hope I, I'm, I'm fair in my representation because it is a, a, a little complicated. Micro.blog is going to be a set of tools. So it does have a timeline like Twitter, but it's based on RSS. So if you don't want to open the app and you just want to see everything Federico writes on his microblog, then you can just like subscribe to it in your RSS reader and just get it there and never worry about it being a social network. So you can use it as like a blogging platform mm-hmm. or you can use it as a, as a social network. I think there's also like going to be like WordPress plugins so you can move content from your actual blog to the social network like it's a couple different things um but i think i think the heart of it is like you own your content like i have a recurring task in todoist every six months to download my twitter archive because one day we're going to wake up and twitter is going to be gone like just gone and i would like i would like my 10 years of talking about silly things and so i download that every once in a while um well with this you would have access to your stuff and you would be able to to export it and use it freely and openly. Uh, I think that he has um, a little bit of work to do to really flesh that out in the way that he explains it. The Kickstarter is about the book, about independent blogging. Like hit, Building the thing is, is sort of secondary to the Kickstarter project. Um, and I, I fully expect in talking to him, and uh, I fully expect that we will see more details about the, the platform mm-hmm. uh, very soon. Like I, I, it's totally real. Like there are people who have seen it. There are people who have been using it is my understanding. Like, um, and uh, I think that, I think he'll do a, a clear job at explaining it. But, um, but I think the heart of it is you own your, your content and you, instead of having a centralized social network, you can put content into the system from, a, from numerous places. You can use the first party app or you can use something else because it's all API based and, you know, so I could have, you know, theoretically my own blog and just write little things and it gets posted here automatically. So um, I'm excited by it. I think that the world, I think at least our world, that sort of nerdy world, like we sort of exist with Twitter as the water cooler and that's really fragile. And I don't think Twitter will last, uh, at least in its current form. And I think there will be a time where 
like all the stuff that the three of us have had possible in our career because of Twitter, like that won't be available to people anymore because Twitter will be drastically different or be gone. And uh, I don't think Facebook's the answer. I don't think I don't think people necessarily want all of their other stuff mixed in. And so maybe this is it. I hope it is. Um, I hope that there's an opportunity for the the sort of community that we have on Twitter to to either move or like regenerate in new ways, new interesting ways, um, somewhere else. And I think Man is onto something with that. Yeah, I uh, I think people should go check it out. There'll be a link in our show notes, which of course you can find today over at relay.fm/slash/connected/slash/124. slash Thank you so much for listening to this week's show. If you want to find out more about my lovely co-hosts, you should go to their independent blogging websites like 512pixels.net for Steven and maxstories.net for Federico. Federico's on Twitter. He's at Fatici. Steven is at ISMH. And I am at iMike, I-M-Y-K-E. Um, whilst those guys were talking about what their, you know, their, their real strengths are in blogging, of course, you can go to michaelswrite.com for all of the latest sticker news. Um, that you've been hankering for. I'm sure that there's a there's a real good uh, audience for me there. Thanks again to Pingdom Ministry Supply and Blue Apron for this, for supporting this week's show. <laughs> Thank you for listening. They maybe listen too. Who knows? We'll be back next time. Until then, say goodbye, guys. Arrivederci. Adios.